0: to work through the book of Hebrews. Our passage today comes from Hebrews chapter 7. Hear the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is But this man, who does not have his descendants from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there was a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well for the one of whom of these things uh, are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath, By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests are many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, ask God's help as we uh, think about this passage together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Hebrews, for what you've been teaching us from it over these past weeks. As we come to uh, what is a, quite a challenging passage, we pray for your help, not only to understand it, but then to appreciate what it is telling us, its encouragement to us, its application to our lives. Father, we recognize that for those of us here in the building and those who are watching at home. All of us are at different points in our journey of faith, but you're the same God who is able to counsel and encourage and help every one of us at whatever point that is. And so we pray confidently that you would do so now as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin by acknowledging something right up front. You'd be forgiven for wondering to yourself after having listened to Jeremy read that passage to us from Hebrews 7, thinking to yourself, what on earth was all that about? Because this is one of those chapters that preachers, if they're topical preachers, never seem to quite get around to, and if they're expository preachers, preaching systematically through books of the Bible as we do here are tempted to skip over, and I have to confess it was at times this week tempting to just jump over this chapter this week, working on the premise that many of you perhaps don't remember from week to week even what book of the Bible we're in, let alone if we've uh, covered chapter 7, but perhaps if we'd just gone to chapter 8, you would have turned to the person sitting next to you in the pew or on your couch at home and said, goodness, I don't remember chapter 7, he must have gone through it, but I didn't notice it. But well, I can safely say that you will notice it okay, because this is one of the most demanding, fascinating, challenging, and rewarding sections of Hebrews, indeed, of the whole New Testament. A part of the challenge for us as readers and listeners of this chapter is that the imagery that the preacher employs here and the argument that he lays out is, is, takes us into very unfamiliar territory. If 21st century preacher was setting out to make the same essential argument as this first century preacher, it's unlikely that that modern preacher would go about it the same way this ancient preacher does. The reason this, this preacher takes the approach that he does is because he's addressing a, a first century audience that understood the nature of Judaism, was facing particular challenges to their profession of faith, and in that context... The application of these truths would have been as familiar to that audience as they feel unfamiliar to us. But having said that, I want to suggest to all of us this morning that Hebrews 7 does actually address a fundamental issue that every single one of us has grappled with. It was even mentioned as one of the prompted prayer points in yesterday morning's daily prayer project where it said, for free, pray, a prayer for freedom from living for the approval of others. Every one of us has this insatiable need to be told by another that we're okay, that we're acceptable. We have this deep longing that we're enough, that we're loved. We move through life on this constant quest to hear such a verdict, to hear from a voice that matters that we're okay. And if we never find that verdict, it leads to despair. Listen to how the uh, character Quentin in Arthur Miller's play After the Fall articulated this quest. He wrote, he says, For years I looked at life as a case at law, a series of arguments. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful. But underlying it all, I see now there was an assumption that a person was moving on a path toward being justified or condemned, a verdict. Then I looked up one day and I saw the bench was empty, no God, no judge inside, and all that remained was the endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. Or consider this, what if for the sake of argument there is a verdict, but based on how you've lived your life, you're fearful it's a verdict of condemnation? Kingsley Amos, the novelist, just before his death in 1995, said this, one of the great things about organized religion is that you can be forgiven your sins. He then paused for a long time and bowed his head and said, I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There's no one to forgive them. Well, Here in Hebrews 7, the preacher wants to, wants to tell us that in both those situations, which are indeed situations of despair, you have need of one thing. You need a priest, but not just any old priest. One specific kind of priest in particular, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's probably not what the latest self-help book that any of us might have picked up would have said that you need, but that's why, to be honest, that self-help book wasn't much help to yourself. We need a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we're told here, and in the Lord Jesus we have just that high priest. That's the gist of our sermon in a sentence today, that you and I need a high priest, and Jesus alone is the high priest we need. And for us to see that theme in this chapter, we do have to jump with both feet into this unfamiliar world addressed here by the preacher that involves in large part this somewhat mysterious figure of Melchizedek. I'm going to tease out our sermon in a sentence uh, via three questions this morning. First of all, why does the preacher use Melchizedek as a picture of Jesus? Secondly, why is Jesus a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then thirdly, how is it that Jesus is therefore precisely the priest that you and I need? Hopefully when we come out on the other side of the sermon, the answers to those questions will enable us to see why indeed you and I do need such a high priest and that Jesus alone is the high priest that we need. So first then, why does the preacher uh, use Melchizedek as a picture of Jesus? If you've been with us through this series in Hebrews up to this point, you'll be aware of at least two observations. First of all, this is not the first time that Jesus has been referred to as a high priest. We've already seen that description of Jesus in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. But the second observation is this, that this is not the first time either that we've heard mention of this name, Melchizedek. The preacher mentioned Melchizedek in a quote from Psalm 110, back in Hebrews 5 or 6, then pulls back a little bit. Then he mentions him again in chapter 5, verse 10. Then he hits the pause button while he confronts their spiritual immaturity, in chapter 5, 11 and following. An immaturity, incidentally, that he points out is revealed in their lack of readiness or desire to grapple with the theme of Melchizedek and his priesthood. And then the priest, the, the preacher gets back to the uh, to, the, to the end of that long warning section and comes back around to Melchizedek in chapter six, verse 20, describing Jesus again as one who has become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you almost get the sense at that point that the preacher, if he had a secretary, turns to his secretary, takes a deep breath and says, well, I suppose we need to stop dipping our toes in the water with Melchizedek and then, you know, jump all the way in. Let's, let's do this. And in he truly goes as we come to chapter 7. And the first thing we notice in chapter 7 is how the preacher uses Melchizedek as a picture of Jesus. Now the word order there is significant. Jesus is not going to be presented here as a picture of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a picture, or to use the more technical word, a type of Jesus. In other words, it's important that we don't get lost in all things Melchizedek in this chapter, because this chapter is not ultimately about Melchizedek, it's about the Lord Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, there are only two references to Melchizedek prior to the book of Hebrews. Both of them come in the Old Testament, and the first of those two references comes in Genesis 14 in an incident to which the preacher here draws our attention. Genesis 13, we read that an alliance of kings had raided the city of Sodom, had plundered it among the captives who were taken and carried off, was Abraham's nephew, Lot. Abraham responds to this capture by gathering a small army, pursuing those plundering kings, overpowering them, rescuing Lot, and then capturing the spoils of war. And then in Genesis 14, we find Abraham upon his return from that military engagement, meeting two kings, the king of Sodom, and then also Melchizedek, the king of the city-state of Salem, who many scholars think that's the precursor to Jerusalem. And it's to that meeting that the preacher here draws our attention in verses 1 to 3. Preacher tells us that this Melchizedek from Genesis 14, resembles the Son of God, that is Jesus, in three ways. First connection, the preacher points out, comes by way of his name, Melchizedek, a compound name from two Hebrew words, one for king, one for righteousness. And as such, he points forward to Jesus, who would come into this world, indeed, as the King of Righteousness preacher then adds to that the significance of Melchizedek being described here as the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace, Salem being connected to the Hebrew word shalom, peace. That perhaps reminds some of us of the, the prophecy in the prophet Isaiah, that the Messiah would come as the prince of peace. So firstly, the preacher uses Melchizedek as a picture of Jesus because of the connection of the name. Secondly, there's the connection of his genealogy. We read here that Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. The preacher isn't suggesting here that Melchizedek was never physically born, that he didn't have a mom or a dad, that he didn't die, that he existed as some form of supernatural being. Rather, he's, he's using what was a common rabbinic literary tool of an argument from silence to make his point here. A couple of weeks ago, Jeremy and I were, uh, participated in a preaching workshop run by the Simeon Trust. One of the presenters mentioned how in one of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, a short story called Silver Blaze, Holmes solves the mystery by way of the curious incident of the dog that didn't bark. It was by means of an unexpected silence, the absence of sound, the absence of a bark from a dog, that the mystery was solved. the Simeon Trust presenter was making the point that sometimes when we read the Bible, we're helped not only by what is said, but also by the silences, also by what is not said. And that's the case here. The preacher sees the silences in Genesis 12 to be as much due to divine inspiration as were its statements. And he capitalizes on that chapter's lack of any reference to Melchizedek's ancestry birth or death to point, him, to point to him as a fitting picture of Christ. Melchizedek appears out of the blue and goes back into the blue. He's like someone who comes without genealogy in the past and without an end in the future. And in that way, he resembles Jesus who came into this world without beginning and without end because he's the eternal son of the heavenly father and he will live forever. So the preacher uses Melchizedek as a picture of Jesus Secondly, because of this connection of genealogy. And then thirdly, there's the connection of ministry. Genesis 14, King Melchizedek is distinguished from his companion, the king of Sodom, by the fact that he, Melchizedek, was both a king and a priest. He's the king of Salem, and as we're told here, he was priest of the Most High God. In the Old Testament, Melchizedek is the only person to combine the offices of king and priest. After the giving of the Mosaic Law and and throughout Israel's later history, the offices of king and priest were established as two different spheres of leadership. And pragmatically, that's generally a good idea, as those aren't two roles that you would necessarily want to put together. The king is the the truth-teller, the keeper of justice, the priest is kind of your advocate, the one who shares your tears. Combining those two roles would be a bit like asking a, a soccer dad on the sidelines who's cheering louder than any other dad for his daughter who's playing on one of the teams, asking him if he would take over as referee of the game. That's not a great idea, something of a conflict of interest at least. But at least there was one place in the Old Testament where to combine such offices, office of king, office of priest, was apparently a good idea and that was with Melchizedek and it was a good idea because it pointed forward to an even better idea that the son of God Jesus himself would also fulfill both offices that like Melchizedek Jesus was a king and a priest. Now the fact that Melchizedek was a priest as well as a king is actually the key to the the preacher's argument through this chapter. Here was a man who wasn't in the line of promise Prom, prom, uh, presented in the early chapters of Genesis, through whom the promised deliverer, our rescuer, would come. That line up to this point had run from Adam through to Abraham. I see, as an aside, that's a wonderful reminder that outside of this line of promise, there were indeed people who believed in the true and living God. Melchizedek was one of them. He wasn't in that line of promise, but he was also not outside the grace of God. He had come to believe. And his name suggests that he was a man of faith with a remarkable ministry. And it's in his encounter with Abraham that the remarkable nature of his ministry comes to the fore. Melchizedek receives a tithe from Abraham. It's the first mention in the Bible of the practice of tithing, of giving a tenth of what you earn to God. But why does Abraham give a tenth to Melchizedek? Well, it's because Melchizedek is here the representative of God. He's priest of the Most High God. And Abraham knows that his victory, his rescue of of Lot, the plunder, everything that he had at that point had come from God. And the preacher then here in Hebrews 7 draws our attention in verses 4 to 10 to how the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, the priests prescribed by the Mosaic law. They also received tithes, in their cases, from fellow Israelites. But he continues, Melchizedek was a greater priest in that he received tithes from the ancestor of these Levitical priests, namely Abraham. In fact, he says, verse 9, he says, we might even say, you can almost imagine a little smile on his face and sparkle in his eyes, he says this, we might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek. That, you know, Levi's DNA, as it were, were was already present in Abraham when Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek. And we read, in response to the giving of the tithes, the greater one, Melchizedek blesses the lesser one, the great patriarch, Abraham. So the question in this whole first part of chapter 7 is addressing not so much, well, who is this guy, Melchizedek, It's it's showing to us how Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus because Jesus is the one we want to learn about here. Jesus is the one we want to understand better. The preacher says he's a picture of Jesus by way of his name, his genealogy, and his ministry. Well, that brings us to the second question then. Why is Jesus a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? The preacher leads us to the answer to that question by what he says in verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Here was the reality. The Old Testament priesthood, the Levitical priesthood did not have the ability to bring what the preacher refers to here as perfection. We can think of that word perfection as really encompassing what we might also call salvation. That is, there was nothing in this priesthood, nothing in the law of Moses that could save you, it couldn't offer salvation, it couldn't give you forgiveness of sins, it couldn't reconcile you and me to the God of this universe, couldn't, couldn't provide everlasting hope and joy and peace. And the preacher then proceeds to explain why a new type of priest was needed by pointing to what was lacking in the old Levitical priesthood. First reason for the need for a different kind of priesthood to achieve salvation, he says, was that the Levitical priests lacked in qualifications. Verse 16, the preacher explains that the Old Testament priest's qualification was, quote, on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, their qualification for the priesthood was that their father was a priest, And his father was a priest, and his father was a priest, and so on and so on. Simply a matter of legal descent, something formal and external, which therefore did not carry with it the spiritual power to say to people, your sins are forgiven. These priests simply inherited the family business, as it were, and therefore they lacked the inner qualification that Jesus has. Namely, verse 16, Jesus became a priest not by bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The preacher isn't saying here that Jesus never died. There's repeated reference in Hebrews to Jesus' death on the cross. No, he means that Jesus died a death that, that was unable to hold him, unable to keep him. It was a death followed by a resurrection, which has given Jesus an indestructible life. I mean, that's the question asked of every Marvel comic, Marvel movie superhero, isn't it? Is, is this hero indestructible or not? The writer here is saying, here's the true hero of all heroes. Jesus possesses the power of an indestructible life, having risen from the dead to live forever. That as a result of his resurrection, Jesus has qualified to be our great high priest forever because he lives forever to act on behalf of his people. Well, then the second reason for the need for a different kind of priesthood was that the Levitical priest's lack of of personal appointment. Again, the the Levitical priest's appointment came by inheritance. If your dad got the job, you would get the job. But Jesus, being in the line, as the preacher says here, not of Levi but of Judah, could not be appointed to the priesthood by inheritance. And indeed, he wasn't. He was appointed by an oath from our Heavenly Father. That's spelled out for the, for the preacher in the second half of, second of the Old Testament passages that refer to Melchizedek, that's Psalm 110. So we have Genesis 14, we have Psalm 110, and he quotes from Psalm 10, both in verse 17 and 21. Let me put those two together to give us the quote, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's a second oath to add to the one that we saw last week in Hebrews 6. Same principle applies here as applied there. God didn't speak this oath in order to somehow substantiate his truthfulness, because we would we doubt whether he tells the truth all the time. Rather, the oath is given for our sake, for our sake to underscore his faithfulness. In this case, promising to you and me with the ultimate guarantee that our high priest has been appointed by the highest possible authority none other than the sovereign Lord of the universe. That guarantee, however, also relates to the third reason why there was a need for a different kind of priesthood, that the Old Testament priest lacked permanence. Look at verse 23. Former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. First century Jewish historian Josephus estimated that there were some 83 high priests from, that served from Aaron the first high priest all the way through the destruction of the second temple in AD 70 others have estimated it would have been much more some even saying perhaps over 300 the reason for so many the preacher's pointing out here is that each of the high priests died the reason that they that they they had to be replaced was because they were prevented from remaining in office by the simple fact of death. And what use was a priest who died and left you priestless? But with a new priesthood, there's no more disruption. So the preacher concludes verse 23 with these words, but he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's part of the guarantee by way of the oath in Psalm 110. Jesus is a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, that in Jesus we have a new kind of priest, the kind of priest that you and I need, who's qualified, who's divinely appointed, and who's absolutely permanent. I found over the years that there are people who are either totally fascinated by Melchizedek or totally turned off by Melchizedek. And maybe both of those positions are represented here or by those of you who are watching on, online today. But whatever the differences is between those two sorts of people, there's one dangerous similarity. That is, if you're fascinated by Melchizedek, you may actually miss the real point of this passage. And if you're turned off by Melchizedek, you will miss the real point of this passage. Because the real point of this passage is the answer to our third question, which is, how is it that Jesus is therefore precisely the priest that we need? Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Consequently, he says, therefore, because of what the preacher has just told us about Jesus' priesthood, his qualifications, his divine appointment, his permanence, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him think back to the quotes from arthur miller and from kingsley amos the start of the sermon everyone's looking for a verdict of affirmation everyone's looking for forgiveness for the messes that we make of our lives and we'll seek those things from friends and from family members from work colleagues if we don't find them there we'll turn to various professionals and we'll pay them money in search of what we're looking for But whatever we're offered from those sources, and in some cases they offer good things, they cannot address our ultimate need. Because the people that we look to in the end are not dissimilar to the Old Testament priests priests of which the preacher here is speaking. That in the end, they are utterly powerless to forgive us our sins and transform our lives. But the preacher says here, there is one there is one who is able to help us to actually save us to the uttermost. That is such a glorious word in this chapter, to the uttermost. Because the Lord Jesus, our high priest who lives forever, saves to the uttermost those who have reached the uttermost. That may be the uttermost in terms of how far we've drifted from God, or, or how bad our rebellion from God has been, or the uttermost because of the shame and the guilt we feel due to past sin, or just because of the chaos and the confusion, the despair, the darkness that we find ourselves in, maybe even today. And the reason that Jesus can save to the uttermost, those who have reached the uttermost, is because he's been to every one of those locations and indeed, as he went to the cross, as the once and for all sacrifice for our sin, he entered a deeper darkness than any of us have ever been plunged into. But now, because he's risen from the dead, Jesus lives with the power of an indestructible life at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we see here, he is able to save you to the uttermost if you will draw near to God through him as he now lives forever to make intercession for you. Do you know how that intercession goes? Some of us have the idea that the conversation between the father and the son goes something like this. Well, yes, Father, it's Andrew Smith again. Yeah, I know I've been coming to you a lot about him recently. Yeah, he's, he's been going through a bit of a, a, bit of a time, but, but if you can just forgive him one more time, just forgive him one more time. I'm sure he's going to get his act together after this. It's not how the conversation goes. Here's how it goes. Yes, Father, it's, it's Andrew Smith again. And yes, it's, it's that besetting sin that he struggles with. But 2,000 years ago, I, I paid the penalty for him sinning today. That when I died on the cross, I bore the judgment for that sin. And if you're a just God, Father, and I know that you are, you don't demand two payments for the one sin. You demand one payment. And I've made that payment. So I'm not asking for mercy, Father. I'm asking for justice. His sin has been paid for. So that the just thing for you to do is to forgive him. And of course the Father does. And as a result, this high priest, the Lord Jesus, is able to come to me and bring eternal blessing to me, as he can do for you, just as Melchizedek brought blessing to Abraham. I thank God for this preacher, preacher of the book of Hebrews. I thank God that as he meditated on Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, he perhaps saw something that no other New Testament writer ever seemed to have thought about, because no one else mentions this, that we have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that no matter who we are or how far we have sunk, Jesus, our high priest, is able to save us to the uttermost. You and I need a high priest. And Jesus alone is the high priest that we need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you. We thank you that you have helped us understand better what you have come to do and what you now do for us through this picture from the Old Testament. We thank you that you are the high priest whom we need. We thank you that you have done absolutely everything necessary for our salvation through your death on the cross and that by being raised from the dead, you not only were uh, declared by the Father to be the Son of God, but also appointed to be our High Priest, the one to whom we come, the one who we know is our mediator and intercessor, our advocate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We praise you and thank you for for that role that you have taken on on our behalf we pray this in your name amen